Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I am ending this long-running saga. I am cancelling the rest of the HS2 project. And in its place... And in its place... We will, in, we will reinvest every single penny, 36 billion pounds in hundreds of new transport projects in the North and the Midlands across the country. This means 36 billion pounds of investment in the projects that will make a real difference across our nation. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, Rishi Sunak, seemingly proud to have cancelled the only real nation-building project that Britain has had for generations to place it with, well, 10% of the money is going to be spent fixing potholes in roads. Hardly a long-term vision, is it? So what does this tell us about how governments use money, not just in the UK, but in any nation with its own currency? And OK, it did cost more than comparable projects elsewhere. So what does that tell us about Britain's ability to do anything other than run banks and look after sick people? Britain might have been losing its way. Has Rishi Sunak finished off the hope of any other major projects in our lifetime? But there will be less potholes, so that's a win. Not sure it can be classified as visionary, though, are you? So Rishi Sunak has pandered to the anti-HS2 brigade. He's ditched the main reason for the HS2, which was to link London with the north of England by only taking it as far as Birmingham. So if, if the people in Manchester want to get to London quickly now, they just have to move to Birmingham. Problem solved. Uh, the reason he gave was because, well, times have changed. Hence, a project agreed 15 years ago that was moving very slowly will now not happen at all. The land acquired for the project north of Birmingham is going to be resold. The billions spent on getting this far written off. The north-south divide linked together by railways that were built in the Victorian era. Uh, all of this was announced at the Tory party conference last week of, in, in, of all places, Manchester, which he flew to, by the way, because he doesn't know how bad the trains are. He just caught the plane. So, Steve, I mean, the cost of the project, this is the, the issue. But is it that big an issue? Let me give you some numbers. The cost of the project back in 2015 was £55.7 billion. That's how much they reckoned. So far, £25 billion has been spent, and there are estimates that it could cost more than £100 billion. Now, look anywhere in the world for large-scale infrastructure projects. They are always double what the original cost was. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has said that this is a sign that the scheme is out of control. This being a government project that for the last 13 years has been a Tory government. Uh, so, you know, the vast majority of the life of this project, they were in charge and they're saying it got out of control. So who can they blame for that? The $25 billion, well, The Labour Party, obviously. <laughs> obviously the Labour Party. What's wrong with you? So anyway, yeah. the $25 billion that's already been spent, let's look at that first of all. What's that done for the UK economy? I mean, it's not wasted money, is it? It hasn't disappeared down a, a plug hole. No, it's been spent. I mean, it's post-government spending. It boosts aggregate demand. So that's a 
and that's the point that the main that the you know, Tories will never get into their heads. But nonetheless, I mean, it, it is true that it's ludicrously expensive. I'm looking at a tweet by Ole Peters. I love his first name, by the way. Ole is the uh, a physicist, and he's established what's called ergodicity economics. And if anybody hasn't checked it out yet, I highly recommend you do because this is realistic stuff. This is how the real world actually operates. But he actually starts with a question, and this is in the same topic we're talking about right now. Why is HS2 so expensive to build? Out of curiosity, I looked up the construction cost for German high-speed rail network. It's about 20 to 30 million euro per kilometre. HS2 costs about British pounds 200 million per kilometre, 10 times more. Why? Does anybody know? And um, lots of tunnels as part is, of it. Is it okay? Because again, yeah. I, I really don't know. So tunnels obviously are dramatically more expensive. Yeah, um, through for the southern part actually, it largely. In fact, getting into London, a lot of it was tunnels because it was tunneling under London, and then you get out of London, you get into you know conservative, greasy, leafy green territory. So you've obviously got a tunnel under that because you don't want. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do, yeah. Do, so you know, so it's the working uh, yeah. class can <laughs> the working class can watch it, my uh, ass go by, but the <laughs> we can't offend. We can't offend the Tories uh, by yeah. actually having them watch yeah. the train go past. Yeah, we can't see all these northerners coming into our city yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a yeah. chunk of that going on yeah but i mean that's but even so that doesn't fully answer it does it because there was uh, there's a project in japan that cost twi- uh, half the amount per mile uh, and that was largely tunneled as well so uh, and given you know, japan uh, yeah topography of japan definitely yeah so yeah, yeah it's uh, it's hard to know, I mean, isn't it? Why do these things cost so much in Britain? Well, probably because Britain has deindustrialized in the last 40 years because, hey, services are going to save our economy. You know, we have become a, mm. a specialist in services. Who needs manufacturing? Ha! Um, and then what you've done is you've de-skilled the entire country, uh, and but particularly de-skilled the public service because the easiest way to cut back on, on spending was to get rid of people who did things. So, um, you know, you, you, you sack your engineers, you, when they retire, you don't replace them, uh, you cut back on the skills, and ultimately you've got a bunch of people who are, are pen pushers trying to build, trying to build yeah. a railway. I mean, it should be noted, $25 billion has already been spent. $25 billion over however many years this is, seven years so far, is the equivalent of uh, 2% of government spending in one year. Uh, so, um, you know, over the, the and another interesting fact over the last 10 years, because, of course, this is the idea. And we should talk about some of the benefits of HS2 because I'm a big supporter of it. So I'm I'm fuming at this idea. And I, I appreciate that the costs were very heavy uh, and people are saying, oh, it's going to make things a little bit faster. Who cares about that? But the whole issue is if you've got an old Victorian era railway line. Uh, rail network, which, by the way, over the last 10 years, they've spent £74 billion on just fixing up the existing rail infrastructure. That is the maintenance cost over the last 10 years, £74 billion. So actually, we're spending way more maintaining what we've got now than we've spent building the HS2 so far. Uh, so there's the, there's mm. a false economy behind all of this. But if you've got an old rail network that needs fixing and closed on Sundays for repair work so everyone has to get a bus, people don't get on the train because they see it as being unreliable. And obviously the capacity issue of it is, is not great either because you've got goods trains, local services and fast into faster intercity trains all using the same line. If you want to run a train from uh, London to Manchester or London to Liverpool along a line that's also got local services, you can't run it every 10 minutes because you've got to let those goods trains through. You've got to let those local stopping trains go through. So the best you're going to manage is a train every hour or a train every half hour. If you've got one line which is just fast trains, 
nothing stopping them. You can run them every five minutes if you want to. So all that, uh, so that hugely, hugely increases. And you can run longer trains, do double-decker trains if you wanted to. You can't do anything like that now because the bridges would all need to be upgraded. So you've got this mm. massive increase in capacity. So even though you've got a large upfront cost, if you're getting more people traveling, you've got greater capacity, then you've got an opportunity to bring ticket prices down. So it becomes a more realistic uh, proposition to people who would otherwise take the car, which is what everyone does. I go up to the north oh. to see my mum fairly often. I hire a car and drive up, because we haven't got a spare car. We need a car back at the house down here. I hire a car mm-hmm. uh, and drive up, and that's cheaper than getting the train. Where's the logic in that? And yeah, it's it should, fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's I, faster. So you need yeah. that capacity issue to get the prices down. You need it with the reliability to get people back on the trains. It's, it yeah. ain't going to happen by just fixing up the Victorian network that we've got. Yeah, I mean, I've, I find this all the time because I travel frequently by train on the continent and I also occasionally travel by train in the UK. And it is like, it's really like stepping back two centuries. Um, and I, I mean, my favourite journey all, I, I saw a photograph of this and I didn't believe it, uh, but there's still a train line where to open the door, you have to put your hand through the window of the train and grab the handle on the outside. I thought, this belongs in a museum. In fact, the entire British rail system belongs in a museum. And... Whereas on, on the continent, you've had it modernized and now you have, you know, like I, I, I travel from um, Amsterdam to France, uh, to Paris in three hours. I can do the run to London in four, um, so long as it's you know, cheap enough because it's often far more expensive than flying. And then all the local transport, you know, you're traveling at 120 to 200 kilometers an hour um, on a, a range of relatively local networks over there. So hopping on the train and going somewhere, you don't even give it a second thought. That's what you do. Uh, whereas in Britain, oh, my God, what's the price going to be? Can I get a cheap fare? Will this thing run? Uh, is And I, I love some of the reasons I've had trains stopped uh, when I've been in London. Uh, I had trains stopped because there's too much sun. I love that. Um, trains because there are leaves on the Leaves rails. on the line, very common, yeah. Cause, oh, cause- my God. Because oh, an unexpected you know. outbreak of autumn, yeah. So the that- one time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm- I'll get to my favorite, my, my other favorite train anecdote. This is a pity. Uh, the one time that I've ever had anything like that happen uh, on the continent was when I had was actually going to the funeral of a, of a good friend uh, by train from London to Paris, so from Amsterdam to Paris, and there was a cyclone, and it stopped all rail transport. Um, from anywhere on, on, along the um, on, along the coast of, of uh, Western Europe, so I just I couldn't go. But that's, it took a cyclone to stop the trains, and of course it also stopped the planes. Uh, whereas in Britain, the leaves stopped the trains. I mean, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I know it's it's crazy, isn't it? So something has to change. And yet the argument from Rishi Sunak uh, is that uh, the behaviours have changed. You know, he says we're travelling less post pandemic, which is true. But it is heading back up. So 1.7 billion journeys made the year before the pandemic, 1 billion in the year 21 to 22, 1.4 billion in the year 22 to 23. So the trend is back up. But, you know, we we are making a long-term decision based on a short-term change in behaviour. But in any case, I mean, people didn't need the telephone, did they? We didn't need telephones because people weren't talking to people in other cities. You know, the, the telephone created the demand for us to talk to other people who went in the same room as us. So there is an element of build it and there will come. But governments aren't obviously can't fathom that thinking because that's very difficult to do in a cost-benefit analysis. And that's the trouble. It's all come down to cost-benefit analysis. And and the 
not looking at the side effects of what you do. So, of course, if you, as you say yourself, if you don't build decent rail, then you get more people on the roads. And uh, then, and, and again, given what climate change and actually running out of oil is going to do to not not to be running out of oil, but getting run out of oil, we can actually that's actually worth getting out of the ground given the cost of the energy cost going in to get the stuff out again. Um, as that gets more extreme, then ultimately there's going to be no point and sometimes no possibility of travelling by car. So if you don't have the rail, that's the end of communication. It's interesting how Rishi Sunak is using falling passenger numbers as a reason to ditch the project, but seems to feel the need to introduce legislation to stop, stop smoking. Uh, when smoking numbers have seen a massive decline over the last decade and continue to fall, uh, but he's going to make it uh, pass a law to make it that you can't smoke. Um, so even though um, you know obesity is on the way up, smoking is on the way down, but he chooses smoking, maybe because the people who he wants to attract the votes uh, don't smoke but are overweight, perhaps, who knows, and don't travel by train. They want their cars because it is all about helping motorists. So, I mean, that, that, that all of this points to the fact that it, the long-term projects, the big problem with, with them is, and I don't know how you get over this problem, and it must be an issue in other parts of the world, long-term projects get uh, sidetracked or, in this case, closed because of politics. That's also... The attitude, the anti-manufacturing attitude and the attitude the government shouldn't spend money. And I think both of those are the, are the fundamental flaws in, in this whole reasoning process. I have yet to trouble, unfortunately, on, on a Chinese high-speed rail, but I want to do that if ever I get to China again. Mm, Unbelievable uh, extent to which the Chinese have, have done the engineering to cover virtually the entire country in high-speed rail. And that has been part of... And I don't know that it actually extends so far as travelling goods. I mean, I'd really like to find that out, whether they send goods that that way as well. But the entire country is connected, and we're talking a continental-side country. Uh, you know, I think China's certainly bigger than Australia, uh, and yet it's got an enormous rail network. And part of it comes down to the people who get into government. And as much as people say, oh, China's a dictatorship and we're a democracy, I mean, we think we're, 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 I think we should call it a jokeocracy. It's closer to it. You get clowns running. I want to call it a jokeocracy. And Ricky, Ricky Suna, what's a good, what's a good nickname for Ricky? Do you think? Well, I, I, I think just change the the the, the uh, Rishi to Richie because I mean he is. Yeah, Richie, uh, Rich, Richie, Richie Suna. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. I mean that that's where you know it's 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 bizarre that I mean none of this affects him because he would never obviously travel by train. I mean he does live in the north of England some of the time, but I'm fairly sure there's a helipad up there. I don't think he's getting the train on the East Coast Main Line. And standing and standing in the join between the carriages for uh, for a few hours. I'm sure he doesn't do that. Oh, no, but it reminds me of a wonderful Punch cartoon. I was a great a great fan and often subscriber to Punch for many years. And there was a Punch cartoon around the time when it was decided by the, the how the the High Court or whatever. You, what do you what do you call it? The High Court in the well, UK. Is the, it the, called the High Court? Well, there is the High Court. This is the Supreme Court as well. It's probably the High Court. You're thinking um, of. Yeah. Okay. The High Court decided uh, that there should be full cost recovery. Uh, for fares, and it had three uh, lords, you know, three of the uh, judges sitting in the back of a Rolls Royce saying, It's agreed, Gen. It's agreed, then. They should pay more for their trains. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where we are. That's where we are. So, look, I've got some, uh, some numbers. So, yes, I found the numbers on that Japan example. So, the 134 miles between London and Birmingham is mm. now expected to cost £53 billion. So, that is just shy of £400 million per mile. So, the Shinkansen line. Uh, in Japan 
cost 50 million per mile actually so a lot less uh but and and it did, it did include mm. a lot of tunnels so there is a, a we are in a, a different proportion so it wasn't we're not costing twice as much we are uh, eight times as much that it by the way opened in 2016 that took four decades and the issue is that it's you know is it profitable is the question mark but i mean my question is that does it need to be profitable number one and secondly if it costs that much more in the UK, part of the reason, well, who knows? Because Japan obviously has a, you know, they tunneled through a great deal and they've got a lot of beautiful countryside that they would want to preserve as well. Plus that line, I think, is going underwater uh, a great deal. But part of the problem with the UK mm. versus China, for example, is that we wouldn't build a railway here that would just demolish areas of, uh, you know, natural interest. Uh, you know, we wouldn't destroy the countryside if we could possibly avoid it, because there's some things that Brits hold dear. You're not going to demolish a, a village that's hundreds or thousands of years old to put to build a railway line. You'll you'll tunnel under it, or you'll take a more expensive route. So that makes it more expensive here. And I, but I so think should, the, the Japanese are going to be the same. I mean, uh, the, the Japanese are, are far better than the British, frankly, at preserving their their uh, ancient heritage. ancient building. Yeah. So mm. I don't think you can make mm. that comparison. It comes down to having an engineering culture versus having a bean counter culture. And I don't even mean bean counters because, of course, economists can't count. Um, they can make up numbers, but they can't count in the first place. So it's the whole the attitude the government shouldn't spend, and that you should do cost benefit analysis for everything. Whereas the Japanese attitude is we want to connect our, our, our country together and uh, and the best way to do that is rail. So they do it. And, of course, China, an order of magnitude more on that front. It is just the anti-manufacturing attitude. And so is it the right decision then to say it's just costing too much or does it matter? At what point does it actually become too expensive? If we say, well, this is this is in effect money that the government is spending, it's money that is being pumped into the, the economy, it has a stimulus impact in that it's employing people, even before you see the benefits of when it's delivered. In, in the meantime, there's people employed, there's all the multiplier effect of all those people employed. Uh, at what point does it become too expensive? How do we measure it? Do we say, well, okay, we're employing people. We're employing people, and we're paying people. But maybe those people could have been employed doing something else, which would be, uh, which might be more beneficial to to the economy. And this I mean, is, how, and this, how, how do we how do we gauge it? You don't even go there, Malta, because the whole problem is that they are seeing this as a cost uh, when it is in fact a, a, a means by which the government can create money. And I saw there's some some bloody neoclassical economist in America raving about how R, R greater than G numbers mean the government's uh, going to uh, run up in unpayable debt. When you do the accounting, and this is what my, my Minsky software is always designed to do, um, it, there's absolutely nothing apart from a couple of stupid laws, just laws passed by the House of Lords and other loonies in, in, in Parliament. Laws meaning that the, the government uh, can't sell its bonds directly to the central bank. Now, if you uh, got rid of those laws and there's absolutely no practical uh, obstacle to the government uh, creating the money by running a deficit to finance something like uh, the HS2 and then the Bank of England buying all the bonds. And so the government would owe debt to the government, which means there's no government, no interest payments whatsoever. Nothing apart from legal laws, which have been drafted by people who've listened to neoclassical economists who don't know the first bloody thing about accounting or virtually anything else. And this, this, is, the, this is the reason we get stupid decisions like this. Um, I mean, the moonshot, uh, you know, we go back to the, the classic 
you know, what was the cost benefit of going to the moon? And the cost benefit was probably very well put by JFK when he said that we do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And it's taken, you know, and again, again, that was shut down by people doing bean counting about the cost and it's too expensive. So we lost 40 years before we got to the private sector being able to develop the technology that now means private uh, organisations are better uh, at doing uh, space shots than the government uh, today, but they wouldn't have got better if the government hadn't done the loss leading initially. And this this attitude that you you know you shouldn't do it so it's going to cost too much only applies to private uh, the sector. When it comes to the government, it is a question: Is this a useful infrastructure to add to our civilization? Um, is it a useful way to pump uh, in- increase aggregate demand at a time when it's deficient? And the answer to both those questions for something like HS2 is probably yes. Right. But but to what extent, though, does there become a, a limit? Because, I mean, obviously, if it became known that, hey, look, the government can can spend, it can, uh, its expenditure can just sit on the, on the, the balance sheet at the central bank forever, uh, and it's not really costing anyone anything. In effect, it is created money created by the government, which is added to aggregate demand, as you say, in the economy. At what point does that become a problem? Because if the, if everyone knew that, then obviously uh, people supplying to this project would go, oh, we're going to double our prices now. It's just created money. What do you well, care? That, well, I mean, that, where, the, where the controls be? And that's part of the problem. That, that Again, a lot of the stuff has been outsourced to the private sector because you've lost the capability within government of, of managing and doing projects of that nature. I don't know the Chinese situation, but I'd be highly surprised if it was entirely privately outsourced. There'd be large amounts of government uh, management and government staff and government engineering going into it as well. And it, it really comes... It comes down to the the role of projects like this is is more to raise the technological level of the country uh, than and 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 to you know the government is is the classic loss leader. The government can afford to do these things now. Of course, as you say, you do have. I mean, the the, the space race is a classic instance of that uh, because what began as a you know a venture to beat the Russians and the whole in that case the attitude was uh, you know to do it as well as possible. Um, and now what happens is one reason that NASA is so uncompetitive against the private sector today is that a huge number of its manufacturing sites have been captured by local political interests. And you've got to spend money there to pump up this particular Republican or that particular Democrat's uh, re-election chances if, they're the, if that's the party that dominates the local state legislature. So you can get all sorts of appalling traps like that, I agree. But it fundamentally, uh, it comes down to having... Uh, a nation-building attitude, which is what you'll find certainly in China and to some extent still in, still in Japan, uh, versus a bean counter attitude. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, thank God Britain wasn't in the space race and Rishi Sunak wasn't the wasn't the prime minister because everyone will be looking at the uh, the UK's attempt to reach the moon and Rishi Sunak will be there saying, "Yeah, we looked at that. We're, I know we've almost we're about to launch. It's got expensive, and I've channeled all that money instead into the Skipton bypass on the A19 or whatever it is." Uh, look, when we come back. I want to look more at cost-benefit analyses, uh, something that we, and I'm going to draw on an experience I've got, which I just found unbelievable, which is the, the business case behind the National Broadband Network in Australia and uh, and how that turned out as an example of, you know, it's not just Britain that can stuff up uh, major uh, engineering projects. So we'll look at that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, I looked it up during that break. The high-speed rolling stock and all the engines for the high-speed trains and the networks in China largely come from a a massive company called CRRC, which is a state-owned engineering company. The lines are being built, or at least designed and coordinated, by the state-owned China Railway Corporation, Construction Corporation, I should say. There's the answer to what we were discussing earlier. They don't get ripped off because they keep it in-house, and presumably they employ people who are engineers, who know what they're doing. I wonder how many engineers as there are directly employed by the UK government. So anyway, getting back to the cost-benefit analysis, the problem is how you measure the benefits against the costs of large infrastructure projects. So we've been saying, you know, the, the, the cost is important, but perhaps less important when, you, when you're talking about government money because it is all money. Aggreg- that just adds to uh, the, the, the amount of money that's in circulation in the economy. Basically, it's sort of pump-priming the economy in a good old Keynesian fashion, I guess. Uh, but it's when you look at the benefits. And I remember the business case for the National Broadband Network. And the guy that was uh, recruited by the conservative government, the, the liberal government in Australia at the time, under Malcolm T- uh, Malcolm Turnbull, was the, uh, the communications minister, um, was uh, based on people's willingness to pay for faster broadband. That was the argument. So what is missed out or was missed out, which is often underestimated, is the societal benefit of all of these things, plus an understanding of how behaviour is going to change. So, you know, exactly the same. There's Rishi Sunak saying, well, fewer people are travelling by train. Well, maybe more people would travel by train if they were faster and they worked and there's more of them. It was the same with the MBN. People would had, you know, fairly slow broadband. If they were told they could have uh, gigabit speeds, how much would they be willing to pay for that? And, you know, the research showed that people would go, well, what I've got is good enough, really. I wouldn't be prepared to pay any more for gigabit speeds because uh, I'm OK with what I've got. But, of course, you know, it's the what, how that changes behavior once you've got it. It's asking people, and this is the problem with cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? It's asking people what they want when they often don't know what they can have. Henry Ford put that beautifully when he said, if I asked my customers what they want, they'd want a faster horse. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it... it, it, it it, it is a lack of a vision uh, coming out of this, an attitude from, from economic theory fundamentally, uh, where economists don't understand technology. Technology them is a magic wand. And, and this is one of the problems that they have in understanding everything. Uh, but certainly when it comes to a project like this, they can't contemplate uh, the the. the, the uh, what they call externalities, but you know, positive feedbacks that come out of something of that nature. And my favourite example there is actually South Korea. And wait for it, the president of the South Korean Communist Party, uh, who uh, he liked my work on Marx, which is fun because I actually proved Marx 
uh, life of labor theory of value uh, contradicts his philosophy. But anyway, he came out to um, stay with me at Western Sydney. Very Stalinist personality too. It wasn't a it wasn't a fun meeting. But anyway, he came out and he would complain about the cost of the. Uh, this is again the thing. <laughs> South Korean housing was much cheaper than Australian at the time. So he was asking me to get a cheaper flat than we were originally located for him. And he turned up and complained about the cheapness of the flat. But then he got out his computer and pulled out his Ethernet cable and went walking around the walls trying to find the plug for the Ethernet cable. And this is about this is about 1998 or thereabouts. And I had to tell him, I'm sorry, uh, you, you're looking for a, a T100 connection on Ethernet. Uh, no, no house in Australia has that. And he went, what? I said, we don't, we don't have it. We, we, we use at that stage it was telephone broadband, wasn't it? Um, what, what do you call that old system? I've forgotten it now. Um, you should what? know. Well, through a dial, uh, the old dial-up internet. No, not not dial-up. Not not uh, what's called. Um, not dial-up, one level above dial-up. But anyway, 1,200, 12,000 board was about the maximum you got. Anyway, mm. he, he said... The plain old said, telephone well, system, the POTS system. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Mm. Oh, no, it wasn't POTS. It was the... Um, ADSL pads. Anyway, it was a, a, mm. ancient. Okay. Mm. okay. And he, he finally said, look, in South Korea, every home has, a teeth, has an Ethernet connection. And I said, oh, what? how does that? And he said, well, the South, Australian, the South Korean government told the telecommunications companies that they had to get together and make sure every house in the country had a T100 Ethernet cable uh, connection. I didn't care how they did it. They had to do it if they wanted to continue operating as telecommunications companies in South Korea. Now, I wonder where Samsung came from. Yeah. So, uh, so, so did, yeah, where is the idiot? I, mean, I, I can't call him idiot because that's insulting some idiots that I know. Tony Abbott, um, when he was prime minister or whatever he was at the time, um, uh, said, you know, nobody needs high speed, uh, so we're going to do it cheaper and we're going to have, uh, rather than having um, optical fibre to the home, we're going to have optical fibre to the node and then use the copper network yeah, and it'll be cheaper. Mm. And you, you know better than I what a disaster that was. Well, the irony of, uh, is out of all of that was because the government didn't absorb, and I want to talk about this, the longer-term longer, longer term benefits and how you account for that, because the because the the cost had to be absorbed by the entire industry and by their customers. What you had was a, a whole load of cost subsidization. So people living in the cities, living in Sydney, for example, had to cost subsidize, still do, uh, the cost of broadband access, which is provided to people in remote areas of Australia. And it was open when they eventually opened it up to competition. They allowed they allowed competition in the cities, but they made everyone pay a tax to cover the cost of providing infrastructure uh, to those people in the more remote parts. So what's actually happened is Britain, has, Australia has got very expensive broadband now. Uh, and, mm. and and not particularly fast either because they compromised on the vision uh, of providing fibre to every home and the government built what most countries already had at that stage, which was fibre to the node. And the reason, which was basically to, to a fibre to a cabinet in your street and then using the existing copper, that's what a lot of people still have in Australia. Uh, but it's been government subsidised because they were afraid to take on the incumbent that they'd created through the privatisation of Telstra. So actually, if Telstra had stayed in, in government hands, okay, you would have had a monopolistic government-owned entity, but they could have built out that broadband that much faster and that much cheaper. So and that much cheaper. And, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, I mean, I'm quite happy. And this this is one of the points which 
I think you can get from Janos Kornai's attitudes to the private sector versus public. How do you draw a dividing line? Mm. And it, 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 in, in the case of large infrastructure like uh, like optical fibre, you don't want 15 optical fibre providers most of the time. Yeah. Sometimes it makes sense optical fibre in the financial sector. They want higher speeds again. Uh, but generally speaking, you have you have a public provision and it could be private organisations that do it uh, a bit with public payment. And then you have private groups all competing to provide down the, but down you, the cable. But do you know what? If you were to say to the, to the private sector in Australia, uh, look, if they'd known the future, if you'd said, well, okay, the government is going to keep, uh, keep the infrastructure, the, the network infrastructure, the last mile infrastructure, just that connection to people's homes. We're going to do that because no one's going to make a lot of money out of that, but that's where the benefits uh, will accrue from us laying out uh, fibre optic as quickly as we can to as many people as possible. If the government says we're going to do that, the rest of the industry would hang hang on to that and say, well, that's fantastic. We'll build core networks that can deliver faster speeds on top of that. We'll build the server farms that are going to be needed for this you know, increased usage of the opportunities that emerge from people having all of that. That's We'll build the software. That's where the real margin is. The, the margin is not in providing that last mile infrastructure. So get the government to do it as a public good. I think most people in the, in the private sector would say that is a fantastic outcome because we're actually making money yeah. where the money is made. You guys do the stuff that's hard to make a profit out of. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's a reasonable dividing line between public and private expenditure. But and and, and what you get is, and that's one reason why South Korea has become a, a major. Uh, developer of telecommunications technology, right down to the to the software and the music, uh, you know. And it was the government said, you know, loss leading. I don't know. I don't know who paid for it. It would have probably been the South Korean government, but they would have. Uh, they just basically told the private organisations every house has to have a T100 connection, and that was you know far faster than anything which existed in most Western nations at the time. And lo and behold, one of the feedback effects of that was South Korea now tends to dominate uh, telecommunications. China is now doing the same thing. So it's again, it's an attitude which is pro-investment and pro-manufacturing, uh, which is still something you'll find commonly in Asia and Europe and America and Australia are dominated by this neoclassical economics cost-benefit analysis, where they only ask people, you know, what are you willing to pay for it, not looking at the spillover effects of some technology like that coming along. So the other danger as well is that if you look at the cost and the revenue received, how long do you spread that cost over to see your return? So, I mean, the real formula, if a new railway is going to last 100 years or 200 years, really what you should be doing is saying, well, okay, once we've built it, what is the maintenance cost over that 100 or two year, 200 years? And surely spread that cost over that time. But no government ever is going to obviously sit on a business case that says, well, this has got a 200-year payback. Uh, but surely that is the way of looking at it because it provides 200 years of, of benefit. You know, if you were in doubt about building the, the railways, and we should talk about that because Britain was, you know, first to roll out railways, actually not by the public sector, but by the private sector. Um, and, and that was done. And that did provide a, an immediate payback. But if it didn't, you know, you could just say, well, OK, if it costs a lot and we, we are looking for the payback for whatever reason. Uh, if it's government money, why should we be so concerned? But if we're looking for if we're looking for the payback on this, let's spread it over the whole lifetime of the of the asset that that we're building, and it would pay for itself many times over. I don't know what the payback period of HS two would be, but I, I'd suggest it's going to be less than a less than a decade, certainly less than two decades. Yeah. And uh, again, it's applying private sector thinking for a publicly funded organisation, and 
and not looking at how technological development and change occurs over time. My one of my main main points that I would think about HS2 and the entire existence of of high speed high speed rail you know, throughout the UK is that at some point we are going to see it becoming impossible to use uh, petroleum to finance uh, to 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 power trips anymore uh, because one one of the long term trends. Well, first of all, we're going to be told no more carbon carbon dioxide at some point. If anybody doesn't believe that, wait five years, and you'll find out the hard way as to why that's necessary. But also, we've been forever, you know, re- reducing using for more and more remote sources of oil to um, to 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 power our civilization. And at some point, the amount of energy you've got to put in to get that oil out gets to the point where oil itself is no longer a source of energy. It's sink. You're actually putting more energy in to get the damn stuff out of the ground and you know, package it, process it, uh, distribute it, and so on. And so at that point, it's you know it's goodbye uh, to uh, to uh, automotive transport. Whereas if you have, uh, you know, this is the great advantage of rail, it's electric. And therefore, if you have your power sources, whether they're nuclear or they're renewable, whatever else, uh, it isn't affected by the potential um, ending of the oil age. So is anyone ever going to invest in in the UK? So I, I, if the government's not, I mean, because the way around this, if you think, you know, it, it, it's too expensive for government investment, that's where you start looking at public-private partnerships. So a question on that is, that is that mm. ever a good idea? And secondly, if, if it was... Who's going to invest in Britain? Because I would have thought that this would be a, a risk now. Because you look at all of this, the new hospitals program uh, that was that was promoted uh, by Boris Johnson, that's gone nowhere. The Houses of Parliament is a phenomenal cost, which makes HS2 look like a, just a, a drop in the in the ocean. And that's going to take, uh, well, possibly 90 years to, to, to finish. Just, give me a bit of background there. I've, 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 because I used to live pretty much opposite the House of Parliament. So what's, mm. they're spending more on that than they spend on the HS2. Well, maybe not quite. Slight exaggeration. But look, I, I mean, it is one of those projects that's just another example of Britain's inability to deliver. So I think they started, you know, it's only going to cost £70 million pounds or something like that. And then that rose to about three and a half billion, pretty quick, sharp. And MPs would have to move out for six years. And if they didn't want to do that and it was just a rolling program, then it would cost six billion. Now, somehow that's risen to, well, about 22 billion. And it's going to take 76 years because they're just going to sort of like do it as a series of interim fix me up type jobs. You know, the Houses of Parliament is just a fixer upper now. Uh, so it's probably going to cost a lot more than the HS2 by the time they, they've uh, finished it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just another example of the inability for for the UK to deliver on large scale engineering projects. Can't even fix up the Houses of Parliament. That, that's actually making me laugh quite a bit for other reasons because um, or cry. any any well cry as well. But hey, I don't live in the UK anymore, so it's always an I'm observing it from the outside. Um, you know that the House of Western, the, the, the House of Parliament burnt down on October 16, 1834. So as we're recording this video, we're actually leading up to. You know, almost the 200, I mean, 190th anniversary of it burning down. And the reason it burned down, and this is, do you know the reason it burned down? Well, I mean, it wasn't Guy Fawkes in 1605 or whenever it was, because because uh, he didn't succeed. No, it was, mm. okay, because the parliament uh, used to uh, collect taxes using tally sticks. 
and tally sticks with pieces of wood which were cleaved down the middle. <laughs> One person would get the stock, the other would get the so all the terms we use, like you know, um, the the stub and stuff like that, come out of this. So action. it became a fire hazard. It became a fire hazard. Now what happened with them, when they went across to pay for money? Uh, they of course all the money and taxes were paid with pieces of wood. Okay, that was the way you did it, and that if 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 that was what we had a record of today. People would realise that money is not you know, gold and stuff like that. It's a promise to pay, and the promise to pay was recorded on pieces of wood called tally sticks. You can find one or two surviving examples if you go to the uh, 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 the uh, Bank of England. But anyway, uh, they, when they went across the paper money to do it instead, all these pieces of wood had accumulated, and they decided uh, to to get rid of them, to burn them, and they burnt them in the House of Parliament. The, house, the fire got out of control and burnt the place down. Yeah, well, not the not the whole building, I but but yeah, looking at this now, the Great Fire of eighteen thirty four. It's an incredible story. I didn't realise that. There we are. You're teaching me a bit of English history there. Cost-benefit analysis wins again. So, I mean, but if you look at all the big projects that, you know, have been looked at, so the the hospital programme, the Houses of Parliament, uh, Hinkley Point nuclear reactor, uh, God knows what's happening with that. That uh, That was budgeted to be about £33 billion. Uh, originally, it was, I think, uh, £26 billion, so it's not moved too far, but it's not moved too far in terms of progress either. And by the way, we we're going to have Chinese money put into that, and we decided against That was the bizarre thing as well. Let's get foreign money in to build stuff that could just be funded by our own government, which, again, is this, this, this strange... Oh, no, 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 hang on. There are some things you've got, you got to buy in Britain using the renminbi, okay? Lots of shops will only accept the renminbi. <laughs> this is the crazy stuff, isn't it? Why, oh why God. for infrastructure projects would you would you attract foreign investment? What is the what is the benefit of that? Well, partly that probably reflects that Britain can't build anything anymore, mm. and maybe they're bringing in the engineers. Or, you know, uh, the, the, this is just. And the engineers do want to be paid in the renminbi. So we need we need foreign money to be able to pay out foreign money to import the workers to get the work done. Is that what you're saying? And the technology and buy the goods and buy the machinery that's necessary to make it as well. That's a possibility, but it's still a joke. So uh, anyway, this all gets down to education, doesn't it, at the end of the day? I mean, Britain, if, if Britain is incapable of building large-scale infrastructure projects, which seems like it is, uh, then you are just in, a, in a, a state of terminal decline until you can fix that issue. So this is a little bit more than a cost-benefit analysis for a rail project. There's something fundamental about Britain that this is telling us. I think it is. And and this is the deindustrialization of the place finally coming home to roost. And all you can do is sell bits of people, you know, sell debt to each other, which people are no longer buying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Rishi, the change merchant, uh, who s- says, well, we're going to use this money to build various bypasses on roads in the north and to fix up some of the northern rail uh, connections is not the visionary that we need, is he? I'm not quite sure who is. No. Uh, but he, he needs to emerge from somewhere. It's not Nigel Farage, either, who could be the next Prime Minister. There's a scary thought. Uh, anyway, oh, yeah. we'll, <laughs> we'll leave it there for now. Uh, and look, next week, um, I thought we might talk about why are some countries poor? I wasn't thinking about Britain, but maybe that's part of it. And why will should be why are some countries poor, and why well, will Britain be joining them? It's heading that way. Uh, we'll look at that next week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Good to talk, Steve. Yeah, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.